Welcome back. Today we're going to learn more about holy cities. I know that's terminology that's kind of odd to most Jewish people. We hear about holy cities in other faith systems. But what so many don't realize is that in ancient Israel, there were cities that were deemed to be holy. And it's not necessarily what you're thinking. In today's day and age, people would tend to refer to Hebron as Irakodesh or Tzfat or Tiveria. And there's much to be said about that. But that may not be what the Rambam, Maimonides, is referring to here. In the seventh chapter of Hilchas Beis Abuchira, which we've been learning, the focus has been on awe and reverence. And the way that we increase reverence is by creating many, many layers of holiness. This kind of gradations. So you move from level to level to yet a higher level with the Beis HaMikdash occupying the highest space or the pinnacle of the pyramid. And in this way, despite the fact that Jewish people living in the land of Israel lived with a sense of destiny, a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, they knew they were living in the, quote, holy land, which is more than just a nice place for Jewish people to live or even a safe place for Jewish people to live. It's the place that has an organic predisposition to fulfilling mitzvot, which nurture, curate, and bring us a closer relationship with God. So we learned that the entirety of the land of Israel is holy. How do you define its holiness? Well, we talked about certain things that grow only in the land of Israel, and only then can they be brought or utilized to perform particular mitzvot. A mitzvah is a command, an instruction from God, but perhaps more profoundly, a connection. We then went on to learn about walled cities. This has a lot to do with Yehoshua, Joshua's arrival in the land of Israel, and certain cities that by virtue of their walled status were consecrated, were designated as uniquely holy. It seems that the view of Maimonides' Rambam is that the reason we designated these cities as uniquely holy is because they would be, if you will, predisposed, organically speaking, to allow for holiness. And this brings us into something we just talked about in our previous episode. Judaism has this fixation <laughs> with the dead. In other words, we believe very much that souls live on for eternity. We also are taught in the Torah that human remains communicate ritual impurity. The greatest chok or statute in the Torah is that of the red heifer. The process and procedures that enable the purification of people who came in contact with the dead so that they might be able to go to the city of Yerushalayim, the holy city of Jerusalem, and more importantly, so that they might be able to participate in temple affairs. The point, of course, of a Beit HaMikdash is, as Nachmanides says, it's the place that houses the Shekhinah, but in the view of Rambam, Maimonides, it's first and foremost the place that allows us for us to perform unique mitzvot. Every mitzvah is another connection, another nexus 
another opportunity for us to cleave to God. And being in a state of ritual impurity, whilst it's a mitzvah to bury the dead, necessarily prevents us from connecting to our God, who is our God of life. We have Torah Chaim. We have Atem Hadvekim Bahashem Elokechem. When you cleave to God, you are Chaim, you are alive. And when there's an emptiness, a vacuum left by a vehicle where holiness once lived, we have what is called Tumah, for lack of better translation, ritual impurity. There really is no frame of reference within the common human experience, so we don't have a good word in English or, for that matter, any other language that really expresses it. This is a divine idea, a godly idea, a spiritual concept. Now, these cities of holiness would necessarily be built in a manner that prevented you from coming in contact with the dead. Funerals weren't held in this city. Human remains were immediately taken out. Today we're going to continue learning Halacha Yud Gimel, the 13th subsection of the 7th chapter of Hilchaz Beis The Rambam goes on to tell us now that although disinterring the dead is considered to be a, a grave violation of their honor and dignity, as a rule, we hold the human remains in the highest esteem and we afford a great deal of respect to places where human beings' remains are interred. <laughs> you know, in Europe, they used to call the cemetery the Helika Art, the holy place. Jewish people have been praying at the graves of righteous men and women ever since the times of Abraham. The Zohar says that Avram Avinu, for more than two and a half decades, prayed daily at the grave of Adam and Eve. Of course, it was the scout Kalev who found the strength, conviction, and fortitude to overcome the temptations of his peers because he prayed at the resting site of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah in Hebron. So the cemetery is a holy place. Disturbing the dead is considered to be a grave sin. It's extremely offensive to us Jewish people when our enemies, all those anti-Semites out there, deface a synagogue. And truth be told, although it's a Jewish idea, it has certainly filtered through beyond the Jewish world. Most people understand that we should have respect for the dead. Moving human remains is really a grave matter, no pun intended. Not something that's done lightly at all. And yet, because of the holiness of the city, because we're trying to create municipalities that would be predisposed to holiness, where there would be a higher level of sanctity or purity that naturally kind of resonated in this municipality or where these people lived, because of this, we hear a fascinating, almost morbid, strange halacha. If, despite the fact that there was mass agreement, or at least to the city council, to bury a very prominent individual within the city, if all of the city's residents decided it was not a good idea for them to have a grave in their midst, they are actually mifanen oisei, we read that they are permitted to actually disinter the deceased and to move a grave. That's a big deal. It might sound strange to you that these are the laws of Beit HaMikdash. It might sound odd to you that that's how we define a holy city. But really, if you think about it, that is precisely the point. Something we never do otherwise can be done in order to facilitate 
the organic sanctity, the holiness that living in this city is supposed to represent. And now, Maimonides goes further, Rambam says, as a rule, all graves can be disinterred, assuming that there is good reason for it, and in a holy city, what everybody wants is considered to be just cause. Chutz with one exception, or maybe two. Mikever Novi, from the gravesite of a prophet, a man and woman with whom God communicated, or Melech, or a person who occupied a position of supreme political power. In the Jewish view, the notion of monarchy is actually part of our Jewish religion. That is to say, the power that is vested in the monarchy isn't just something the people democratically decide upon or perhaps have foisted upon them. The Torah itself creates the governing system. And the Torah itself is the source of the monarchical power that the king would have. And as such, even if he wasn't the greatest of tzaddikim, many of them were, even if he wasn't a prophet, there were some kings who were also prophets, if he was a melech, a king amongst the Jewish people, then there's a certain halachic level of honor that's afforded to him and to his remains. And that grave can never be disinterred. The origin of this is found in the Tosefta, in the codicil of Mesechet Bava Basra. It's also found in one of the minor tractates, which is called Smachot. And over there, we find substantiation for the ruling that the Rambam gives about the unique treatment for the grave sites of prophets or monarchs. Interestingly, over there our sages give us biblical example. They cite an actual story or things that were known. The prophetess Chulda, one of the most remarkable Jewish women of Jewish history, who was a vehicle through which Hashem spoke to the Jewish people, and she was also a tremendous Torah scholar who taught Torah on the steps, on the southern entrance of the Beis Hamikdash. According to one opinion, the southern entrance of the Beis Hamikdash was called Sharei Chulda, the gates of Chulda, because of the name of the prophetess who taught Torah there. So prominent was she. She was buried in the city of Yerushalayim, forget holy city, the holiest city. King David was also buried in the city of Yerushalayim, there's a lot of question about the area they presently identify about as the grave of King David. They maintain that that's outside of the city limits of ancient Jerusalem, and therefore there are those who cast aspersion or aren't sure if that's really the site of King David's resting, resting place. I'll only say that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was a man of extraordinary spiritual clairvoyance and a very, very high level of spiritual consciousness who was aware overtly, of things that nobody normally could have been aware with. He, he made a point of going there to Davin. So whether it was King David or another very great tzaddik, I guess we'll find out when Mashiach comes. The point is this. Where exactly Chulda the prophetess is buried may be a subject of some contention, perhaps. Perhaps the area with identified today as the grave of King David can be a source of contention. What is no there's no argument about what is absolutely certain is that both Chulda and Dovna Melech were buried in the city of Jerusalem and their graves were never disturbed. And from this, our sages understood that the only grave that can never be disinterred, even for the reason of maintaining the purity, sanctity, and holiness of the Ir HaKodesh, of one of the sacred sanctuary cities of Eretz Yisrael, even Jerusalem, would not allow us the disinterment of a Novi or of a melech. 
Now the Rambam says it gets really interesting. Kever, shehikfatu ha'ir. What if you have a grave that was outside the city, as we talked about in our previous episode? Typically, Jewish people would bury their dead outside of the area where people lived. And of course, the graves were marked. People would know to stay away from that area. Ravid, one of uh, probably Rambam's chief protagonists, argues that these halachas would apply really to any municipality, not only to a walled one. Rambam clearly understood this to be applicable specifically to a walled city because of its added level of holiness. Because we're trying to create that grade of Kedusha, which leads us to greater reverence for Yerushalayim. So what if there was a grave and then the city expanded? City council made a decision that they were going to take the walls down and broaden the residential area of the city. Maybe the walls had fallen down already. At any rate, the question now becomes, what do we do about this grave? If it was a grave that was to begin with buried in a holy city, it's almost understood that should the residents decide that they don't want this grave amongst them or that it's too hard for them to maintain ritual or spiritual purity, it was almost like a given. Perhaps it's almost like burying on condition. But the question would be if somebody was buried outside of the city to begin with, never expecting that that site would be disturbed and now the city is expanded. So Rambam says, whether this new expansion, the area of the holy city that's grown, has actually surrounded the grave on four sides, or on two sides, for example, north and south or east and west, if there was between the grave and the city more than 50 cubits, a cubit is arguably 18 inches, although there are other opinions as well, it goes as large as 24 inches, but the working rule is 18 inches. So if you have 50, then you can't move that grave unless every single resident agrees. It seems to say that now it's not enough to have agreement of city council. Now you need all of the residents to be in agreement. That's pretty unusual for all the residents of any city to ever be in agreement. I don't know if in the history of democracy there's ever been a 100% election, except maybe in wonderful countries like Syria or Iran or maybe the Soviet Union. But in normal countries where there's actually freedom and people can express their opinion, 100% agreement is almost unheard of. And yet that's how serious a situation we would require to move a grave like this. Now the obvious question is when you read the words of the Rambam, what do you mean it's within 50 cubits? Why did they enter that space? Why did they invade that space? Who gave them the right to do it? And that's why many understand the words of the Rambam here to mean that it was buried within 50 cubits of the city. In other words, the grave was outside the city, but it was still within the scrimmage of the city because 50 cubits is kind of still considered within the orbit. In that case, I think the understanding is that if it's within 50 cubits, it's almost still as if you had buried it in the city. And as such, there's still a possibility, albeit a distant one, but a possibility of disinterment if everybody in the city feels it's the right thing to do. However, if it was, in, it was, it was less than that, then in that case, we are permitted to actually go ahead and to move to disinter the grave. Now, so how does that work? So if there was more than 50 cubits, then you can't move it. Because more than 50 cubits, it was understood that this is a grave that was never going to be moved. 
less than 50 cubits, it was kind of understood that just as a person might be buried within the holy city and the family or whoever performed the burial was always kind of aware that this is not necessarily a permanent spot, which incidentally meant that some people wouldn't want to be buried in a holy city. Although I guess there's a great deal of prominence to be buried in a holy city, many people wouldn't want it because it could mean the possibility of disinterment. However, if you've been buried within 50 cubits because you're still within the radius of the city, in that case, it's almost like being buried within the city. And as such, we were allowed to be move, able to move the grave even if we didn't have the agreement of all the residents, I suppose Rambam would go back to what he said previously about the notion of the city council being in full agreement. And that kind of concludes the halacha Yud Gimel, the 13th halacha of this uh, very unusual, it's a very unusual set of halachas. The Rambam mentions these rulings only with regard to walled cities. The Har Hamaria, a major commentary in the Rambam, notes that the sources that I mentioned earlier, which are the presumptive sources of the Rambam, make no distinctions and appear, appear to apply these rulings to all cities, which is why Ravid followed that path. He said cities have to be organically predisposed to holiness, protecting the residents from Tumah, from ritual impurity. But Rambam clearly felt, knew, or believed that this applied specifically to Ore HaKodesh, thus serving as the next step up in our ten levels of holiness, ten levels of Kedusha, that mark the land of Eretz Yisrael, all of this, it would seem, from the position of the Rambam's inclusion in the seventh chapter of Hechus Beis all of it leading into the greater fulfillment of the mitzvah of awe, reverence, and respect for Hashem's holy and chosen house. May Hashem help us that from our learning about the things we did in order to increase the sense of reverence and awe for Hashem's house, that we increase in our own reverence, awe and respect, as well as yearning for the rebuilding of the third base of Migdash, will be amen speedily, and in our days, amen. Thanks so much for joining today.